Hey guys, welcome to How Music Charts, where we pull back the curtain on today's music business, exploring music industry trends, music data, and the creativity that helps your favorite artists hit the charts. I'm your co-host, Jason. You'll hear from our other co-host, Rutger, very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Trapmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. On this episode, we talk to Adam Canwall about the article he wrote for the Trapmetric blog entitled, How to Promote Your Music in Southeast Asian Trigger Cities. Canwall is a digital marketing and analytics consultant, working with artists such as Amorphous, Still Woozy, Remy Wolf, Suzuki Saint, and Miss Madeline to analyze TikTok and YouTube trajectories, building campaigns from the ground up. He's formed partnerships with over 100 influencers globally and has also served as a digital marketing specialist for Shifted Recording in New York City. He's a 2021 graduate from Cornell University in New York, with a background in human development and minoring in international relations and music. His primary interests are in creating psychologically smart, culturally relevant, and globally reverberating digital marketing campaigns for up-and-coming musical artists. So without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Adam Canwall. What's up, Adam? How's it going? Thanks, Jason, for that intro. I appreciate it. For sure, for sure. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, likewise, likewise. How's uh, Ithaca, New York doing nowadays? It's good. Um, Things are starting to warm up. We have like horrible weather over here. Um, It's like probably the rainiest place in New York. Um, I think it has like the lake effect because we're in the Finger Lakes region. Mm-hmm. Um, so things are usually pretty gray, but right now, um, I think like it's, we're starting to emerge out of spring and smell summer coming up. So yeah, yeah, things are, things are getting better. And you'll be joining us here in New York pretty soon, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm planning on moving over to New York in the next few months. Um, hopefully I'm trying to catch the, the wave before rents start to increase. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it, coming. It's coming. Yeah, definitely coming. It's definitely coming. Um, they, we've been really lucky with low rents, but hopefully I can catch the wave. Yeah, I mean, we were saying before uh, we started the recording that uh, I think you've played the uh, pandemic uh, very, very well in terms of rent and and just, you know, yeah. making your money go where it's worth. So you're still young, but you already have an interesting background. Just doing a little research, we, we saw that you had a mix of human development, which was what your degree was in, um, but also mental health and foreign policy. So yeah. with that background, so why even work in music at all? Tell us, tell us how you came to music. Yeah, um, so I think like the thing that kind of unites all of these things is I've always been extremely curious about people, like both on the individual and group level. Um, and my parents both happen to work in mental health. Um, and then I also come from a multicultural background. So my mom is from here and she's Jewish and my dad's from India and he's Punjabi. Um, so I think like kind of growing up as a multicultural kid in a primarily white town was an experience that a lot of times drew me inwards um and it was difficult in some ways i often found it hard and, and i still do to kind of integrate the like these two separate parts of myself um but one place where i could truly feel free was when i was listening to music um and um i started to make my own music um late when i was in high school and then i kind of found that i tend to naturally use elements from both of my different backgrounds from my western and eastern ears and and um, somehow mesh them. And I think that being able to explore those two sides of myself in parallel to each other in like a free way um, has helped me to kind of liberate myself from um, either of those cultural constraints um, and kind of like transcend that in a way. And it's obviously something that like I'm constantly working on um, and is often difficult, but um, that's kind of like where my interest in music came from. Um, and 
Um, but when I went to college, basically, um, I decided to still major in human development because I was super curious about just human nature and had a lot of questions about psychology. Um, and so I pursued that. And then the interest in international relations, I, I now when I think about it, I think it's kind of like the same thing. It's like international relations and foreign policy to me kind of represents like a macrocosm of that same process of like using the different cultural expressions of the human race to find collective answers. So like all of these things are about acknowledging differences so so deeply and on sub, such a deep level that we arrive at some like concluding commonality. Mm -hmm. um, and in the case of music, that commonality might be one song. Um, in the case of international relations, that could be one policy. Anyway, so yeah, when I got to college, I was still majoring in human development. Um, I did some studies of international relations. I did, um, I minored in international relations, but I kept myself involved in music. I was, um, I worked at the radio station at my school. I um, was president of a record label at my school. And I kind of kept feeling the pull in different ways towards the music industry. One of the ways was I actually spent one summer in Greece working with refugees um, on a mental health project. Um, and I was doing like psychological support with refugees. And, and one of the elements that I brought into that project was music production workshops. And by far, like out of all of the things that we had done, we were also doing like mindfulness, stuff like that. Music production seemed to be like the most rewarding and the most effective thing where people felt like they were able to cope with a lot of the trauma that they were facing. That's awesome. Yeah. And it was. And so after that, like I felt like maybe music and the music industry is a way for me to like further explore these questions that I have and, and kind of um, approach these things in a slightly different way. I feel like everybody has like a role to play. And when I think about like, maybe I should be like someone at the UN and like, and like do foreign policy. Like, it's like, if, if my like spirit isn't fit for that, then I probably won't be able to make the best positive contribution that way. So maybe my spirit is best fit for music. And that's the way that I can make a positive contribution to the world. Um, so that's kind of like how I've thought about these things. I'm sold, man. When's a TED Talk coming, dude? <laughs> I am sold. <laughs> we just released an article with a, another recent graduate, Camille Lopez Silvero. So that was about also mental health, but it's a different take. But frequently in the entertainment business, especially with music, or it's frequently forgotten that it's a cultural product, right? It's such yeah, a weird, I subjective, squishy, social, cultural mix of values and history and the reasons why, you know, lyrics are a certain way. And it's just kind of looked upon as intellectual property to make money. And it is, it is those things. But right. I think frequently that that cultural side is lost. And I think it's super cool that, you know, younger people like you are entering the industry and, and having that very much, you know, front and center in, in your mind. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always like, I, th I think it's always 50, 50. Like, I think there are always people like who view it just one way, like just view it as kind of like an intellectual um product still in my generation too um but then i think there's also like those of us who are like starting to see more of the cultural relevance and and starting to try to like also we're growing up in in a in a society that's much more aware of like cultural sensitivity and like i that's i hope that like those things are going to be brought into the industry and like we are more aware of that in the future so speaking of of that of the cultural context yeah the article that you wrote really deals with like your real, real world experience marketing artists in Southeast Asia. Absolutely. First of all, what drew you to that? And what kinds of artists do you end up working with? Yeah. What artists do you market in Southeast Asia in terms of genre, career stage, audience sure. types? And how did you 
accumulate all of that experience? Sure. So um, this all started, so I spent um, a summer interning at Shifted Recording, um, which is a studio um, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And they were kind of starting up their, not like a label, but kind of like a, a company where they could take some of their emerging artists from like the zero to the 50 and help to get them started on the digital, on different digital platforms. Um, and so it was kind of my job to figure out how to navigate those digital platforms and market um, those um, artists and find the right audiences for them. And while I was working there, I think the, the first thing that kind of brought me into this was I actually read one of the articles, the chart metrics articles on trigger cities. And I was just super fascinated by like the idea of like different cultures deal with music in a different way and deal with music on social platforms in a different way. And I'm, I'm just someone like, I'm definitely like a, a culture junkie. Like I, I love like interacting with people from different cultures and kind of like understanding the way that different people, different people think. When I read that article, I, I had this like kind of dream in my mind, like what if someday like I could create like a global network of marketing professionals and industry professionals and artists who could help each other to understand their respective cultures and distribute music um, and integrate different types of music within their cultures. Um, so for example, like there's a marketing professional in India who has a really good understanding of, there's a lot of different localized um, video platforms in India beyond just something like, um, like we have TikTok here. They have a lot of small localized um, video platforms. Um, if there's someone there and I have a, and they listen to one of my artists music and they think, this has potential within these platforms. How can they help me to kind of integrate that music into those platforms and vice versa? How can I help them to integrate young emerging Indian artists into different spaces within um, the American industry? Um, and like kind of that dream is like, like something that I think about, like I could be traveling to different places. I could be interacting with people of different cultures. We could be working together, both on the creative side and the data side and come up with new intricate ways of, of marketing music and, and potentially in the future, like making room for a lot more fusion, which I think is like the most exciting and most interesting music too. I think when music crosses cultural boundaries, it happens to end up being super interesting. So that's like where that passion came from. Um, and then in terms of like in, on, in a more concrete way, um, I had been working with some of the artists that shifted. Um, and one of them was um, kind of like a slow male pop artist. Um, Suzuki Saint and we've been like trying to um, kind of launch him um, from the zero to the 50 and and he has a sound that I realized from like just listening to a lot of music that was popularized in the Philippines and um, and also like um, Indonesia and looking at what was trending over there seemed like so well tailored for that market um, and so I started to kind of based on him, like make relationships with influencers over there and, and start conversations about like, how can we work together and how can I um, help to market this type of music in the Philippines? Um, because at the end of the day, like they're like also looking, they're always looking for new artists to work with. Um, and also like, I think that the prospect of doing something globally and internationally is, is really exciting for both of us. That's like how I kind of got into this. And that's, that's, like the mentality that I was taking into it. So Latin America also uh, seems to have a lot of trigger cities. Have you thought about that region and any similarities between Latin America and Southeast Asia? 
it's definitely something I've thought about, especially because um, I'm like, like almost fluent in Spanish too. So um, that's like a market where like, I would really, really love to like engage with. Um, I also like Latin music is one of my favorite genres. Um, um, I haven't done too much research, but I would be really curious to see like the same thing of like what, what kinds of music are, is starting to kind of like blow up in, in Latin America here. But I think what's more interesting to me, honestly, is like Latin American music that's blowing up in the United States. Um, I think like Latin American music is having a massive, massive moment here. Um, and so honestly, it interests me more to be like helping Latin artists to market their content in the United States. Um, but yeah, I think vice versa, I would love to also learn more about that. It's not something that I've really explored. So before we get into like the nitty gritty of the article, you kind of lay out four principles. Like the first is like cultural context or awareness. The next is like paying attention to cost per view. The next is the power of covers. And then you end with the importance of partnerships. How did you come up with these principles and which ones didn't make the article, if any? So, I mean, first of all, I think the first, like the first and the last one are the most important. I just want to say that before, like being culturally sensitive to why certain music works, being culturally sensitive to how you approach this process like that. I, in any like business you do, I think the first thing that you should have in mind is that like people are valuable in and of themselves. And so culture is also valuable in and of itself. Um, and cultural culture means everything to people that kind of leads into that last point, which is like collaborations are everything. This is not like the, my dream about what I mentioned before of having a global network. It's not about, I mean, obviously it's like, I have things to gain from this and like, obviously like, and I, and I, would hope to like be able to support myself from this. I would hope to be able to progress in the industry from this, but this is a team effort. This is a collaborative process. Like music is a collaborative process. No music does not exist with one person. Um, it exists because of the effort of a lot of different people and the distribution and marketing of it also exists um, because of the work of a lot of people. So that's why I say um, collaboration is important, especially in a context where you don't really know um, the culture that intimately. Um, but how I came to like these different things was like all just trial, trial and error. Um, I would reach out to people, um, and I would do negotiations. I would, I would try to figure out how to like deal with, um, pricing for different influencers and stuff like that. And I would end up like, just like with no progress or like with like, an outrageously high price for something with, with um, like the content not being like exactly what we expected with, with the music just not fitting. Um, and so those are like, like those different kind of pillars emerged from just like that process of trial and error. Um, if I had to think of like things that didn't really make um, the article, it's, I mean, I just, I just think the collaborations piece, like I could have expanded on that a lot. Like, I think, um, like I only do this because of the work of like agencies in Southeast Asia, um, that facilitate, um, conversations between marketing professionals in the U S and influencers in Southeast Asia. That, like, that's the point that I want to stress the most. Like, like this is all a game that's played based on, um, relationships between people. 
So let's get into this. So let's go. Let's tackle this first point. I really like how you titled this this first point. Just don't don't throw shit against the wall. Nothing will stick. Is how you put it. So you know you, you already alluded to it a little bit, but can you get a little bit more into detail about why a certain vibe of music works works well uh, in certain cultures? Um, yeah, we talk about the Philippines a little bit. So I, which I found fascinating. So if you can get into that a little bit. Yeah. Um. Absolutely. So first of all, that that point was like. I was trying to market um, like kind of like a hyper pop artist um, in Southeast Asia because this was when like I was approaching this like just on a very like on in like a more brutish way and I didn't really understand like the intricacies behind it or maybe I did but I just didn't like I just wanted to get I just wanted to jump in and see what worked um, and nothing really stuck like like the the music and and it, it should have been obvious like the content um, that influencers were creating like it didn't like, it didn't seem like, like, even though these were influencers who were generating like high levels of video creation, they weren't generating high levels of video creation for artists like the one that I was marketing. Um, so like, it should have been kind of obvious, but I wanted to try it anyway. Um, and the thing that I realized is that like, so you have to think about like the socioculture, like we, we talked about like a little bit that slow pop, male slow pop artists, um, who sing with like a lot of tenderness um, about love tend to be really popular um, in the Philippines um, and also in Jakarta, Indonesia. And when I thought about like, why is that the case? Like it made complete sense. Like, so um, the popularity like of Western slow pop music in the Philippines, like came really from like an early, historical fusion of of this old genre of filipino um romantic folk music and american pop um and when america the u.s had colonized the philippines um the energy and traditional pundiman folk songs kind of fused with those new american um commercial songs um and that kind of produced that um that ear for the tender love songs um of male singers um, and female singers as well. Um, but there's just tends to, there happens to be some virality for ma slow male pop singers over there. Um, and so, um, when I was approaching the, the process, like from then on, I, I like kept that in mind and like, it worked a lot better. Like when I was, when I was, when I tried to market that type of content, first of all, influencers were much more receptive. Um, it was less like they were like, like doing a favor and more like, we were so excited about this music and let's collaborate and, and let's um, try to see how we can um, market it. Um, agencies were also more like excited about it. Um, they like pitched the idea of like bringing radios in and, and radio stations in and stuff like that. I mean, it became clear to me, like you have to really, the best case scenario is like you do research on a culture, you do research on a culture's history. Um, and that's how you kind of, that you help you use that to help you inform your decision of like, how am I going to market this content and where am I going to market this content? Um, and that speaking to my like dream again of like having this global network, like that's the reason that it has to be a global network because um, ideally you have consultants in so many different countries who, who can kind of like tell you about um, the culture there and about the histories of different music. And so, yeah, that's, that's like kind of how that first pillar emerged. 
and to do that at scale is going to be tough just by yourself. So it makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think it's like, not just tough, but like, it's not, it's not the goal. Yeah. I think like, I don't want to do that by myself. Like, I don't think it should be done by just an American. Um, so yeah. Dig it. So the second point you talk about um, specifically working with social media influencers um, in the Philippines um, at a very like tactical level. So you're talking, this is about um, calculating cost per view. Describe, describe that process, how you came across, you know, that metric to give you at least a baseline with which to yeah. make negotiations. Sure. So, so the way that I came up with um, using the cost per view was when I started, and this is not just relevant um, only to like, marketing and digital marketing in the Philippines, um, or in, in Jakarta, this is, I think, relevant to influencer marketing anywhere. TikTok is really like the wild west right now. Like there is no market structure, um, and there's no, um, standardized pricing for influencers. So you can have an influencer who, um, has 300,000 followers and let's say like a hundred thousand, um, average views on their videos. Um, who's charging like 5,000 more than an influencer with like half that many um, views and followers. Um, and I don't know how people really are coming up with their prices, um, but it kind of puts you at like a, it kind of puts you at a disadvantage in negotiation because like you don't, when you don't know how people are coming up with their prices, it's like, you don't know how to negotiate with them and get help and try to get their prices down. Um, so like I was looking for like some type of metric um, and, and I didn't come up with all this stuff on my own. Like this was from a lot of help, like from the people around me, a lot of help from like other digital marketing professionals who advised me like to do this. But um, I was just looking for some metric to try to kind of like have in mind when I'm starting negotiations with influencers, like what is like, if there's no market structure, how can I kind of like create some market structure? Um, and there's, there's this thing that advertisers use for like targeted advertising called cost per click, which you talked about, um, in, um, your articles and also in, in, um, chart metrics report. And, um, that's a great metric. It's, it's, it's good for targeted advertising because it allows you to see basically, um, how much you're paying, for click for each click in a certain market. Um, but that's not really like, that doesn't really work with it for influencers. Cause, um, like they operate in a different way. It's not like you're paying for people's click. You're paying for like the content you're paying for. Um, and then on top of the content you're paying for the views. So it should really, in my mind, be based on like how many views are they getting? Um, like on the average. Um, and so when I thought about that, I was like, so basically like how can we use how many views they're getting on an average to calculate how much we should be paying them. Um, and so cost per view is the amount that a YouTuber is making off of each of their views. Um, and there's basically a standard, um, there's a standard price in different markets. So like in the Philippines, the cost per view is different from the cost per view in the United States. Um, and because of that, if you have an influencer in the Philippines who's charging, who, who has an average of like 100,000 followers and 100,000 views, um, they should really, that they, they'll be making less money off of those views than somebody who has the same views coming just only from the United States. 
Um, so in my mind, it seems like what is their biggest risk? Their biggest risk is a video flopping, um, in which case they would make none of their money. So they should want to at least offset whatever, like the, the risk of their video flopping completely by charging you their cost per view. Um, so if they're charging you way above their cost per view, um, that to me seems like it might be a little extravagant. And in that case, like we should work together to try to get that price down as close to the cost per view as possible. Your third point regards a rather region specific passion for covers and lyric videos. So, you know, covers for sure are, are quite the boon for new artists making a name for themselves as well as, you know, publishers owning, you know, those copyrights, but particularly in, in Southeast Asia, what makes covers unique uh, in your opinion as, as a kind of a method of, of like fan traction and audience growth? So something that I've seen is that a lot of local artists um, who like pop off in Southeast Asia um, and in, in somewhere like the Philippines um, tend to actually be cover artists at first. Um, so I think that's something that's super unique. Like um, a lot of artists that become, I mean, of course we have some artists here who also become popular um, through covers, but if you think about like top pop artists, like, you weren't searching their name like a year ago and like looking for their covers of other songs. You were like, they were dropping their own songs. Um, and again, I think that relates somehow to um, this idea of like music being engaged with in a much more social and communal way in those cultures. Um, like my family is from India, I mentioned. And um, I think the way that Indians interact with music um, is just, it's viewed in a much more communal, familial sense. Like it's not, like you don't listen to music um, to please like kind of like, I mean, obviously you do listen to music yourself, but um, I think like the act of sharing music becomes like a cultural artifact. Like we're sharing music together and we're, that is like enforcing our bond. Um, and covers are like, like, I think like the perfect symbol of that. It's like, um, we're using the same written music and we're singing it together. Um, and, um, I'm popularizing a song that's already been popularized. So people are going to engage with it and make those connections of you are covering this song. And we're all part of this global musical network of people who are covering the same music and using the same music. I mean, mm -hmm. engaging with it in different ways, mm -hmm. which is a very subtle difference, right? Right. It's a little difference. It's like the, the, the output looks the same on the outside looking right. in, but the reasoning behind it is different, which I'm sure has some kind of importance, I guess, with the way you approach it as a digital marketer. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think so. Yeah. And, and I think really interesting as a digital marketer, because like, I mean, covers are an amazing way to market music. Like, like um, I, I mentioned in the article, um, Pink Sweats, Mm -hmm. um, who has gotten a huge amount of popularity, um, in the Philippines, um, and in Indonesia, Pink Sweats had a lot of covers made, um, in the Philippines for his song at my worst. Um, and then what he did was he did a reaction video of, um, the Filipino covers. Um, and see that to me is like the perfect way of playing into that cultural, um, trend. It's like, He's yeah. integrating himself into this larger cultural musical network 
by reacting to those videos. Um, yeah. So that's like, to me, a very savvy and smart way. And also like a cool way, like all of these fans are now like able to interact with him in a, in a fresh way. So your last point uh, concerns getting network, which you've mentioned already uh, in the right way in, in this region. So could you, can you break that down for us a little bit more in detail? Like what, what network should they be, um, you know, a part of and you know, what, what's the best way to go about that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think this, this part is like a little trickier in terms of like um, people in, I mean, in the music industry here, less so there, honestly, I've noticed, but especially here, like um, you kind of need proof, proof of concept to get into different networks. Um, so like, why would someone respond to you? Like, if you don't really have any value to bring to them, um, that's like kind of like the standard here. And I think that's less so there. I think people um, are from my experience, at least like more willing to work with somebody like me, who's like kind of a beginner in the industry there um, compared to how it previously was here for me. Um, but overall, like you still kind of um, like, you do need some proof of concept. Like you have to be bringing, I think like good artists to them. You have to be bringing people who you believe in at least and um, who have some um, data behind them, um, some either streaming data, some social data. Um, and then the best thing to do is like to engage with different talent agencies. So there's a few um, that I've kind of communicated with. One of them is called um, Gush Cloud. Um, and they're an agent, a global network of agent um, of influencers all over the world, but they specialize in Southeast Asia. Um, another one's called Hominem PH, um, and they're a really cool um, influencers slash music strategy agency. Um, they work with a lot of um, domestic talent um, and artists in the Philippines, and they help to market that. But now they're starting to also break into the international space and help to market um artists in the US and in a few different places too. Um, and they're a great team to work with. Um, and I kind of just, the way that I would go about this was like, I would have um, an artist like Suzuki Saint or like somebody else who's starting to get some traction. And I would reach out to maybe 10 different organizations and um, whoever responded to me, I would kind of start there. And from there, like you just start to form relationships with people. I think um, like people in the music industry tend to be connected um, so, um, like any one person is a great jumping off point to start to like form necessary connections. Um, and, but I think like at the end of the day, it's just like that, that is the point. Like if there's one point that like I would leave, it's just that like collaborations are everything in this, in this game. Like you can't market content in Southeast Asia, um, alone. And I don't, I, I even like strongly advocate for like rather than reaching out directly to influencers um i think it's better to like work with the infrastructure that already exists there um and like so that you can create benefit for them you can create benefit for yourself and you can create benefit for the influencers it's like a win-win-win situation priya duan who is on our podcast actually from uh, gig life pro which you mentioned in your article yeah. as well yeah. Yeah. I, so I joined that. That's actually, I think how I found homonym. Um, that that's a great network. Um, um, she, she seems like a super, super experienced and super savvy, um, really genius, um, in the industry, especially in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, and yeah, she started that network gig life pro and I joined it. 
um, and they have really great updates um, like weekly and, and they have, um, they have like um, happy hours where you can meet different music industry professionals in those markets. Um, so like that is like a perfect example of um, kind of like a community to integrate yourself into. So you can make those necessary connections to form collaborations and, and help to spread music in those markets. Definitely. So on that note, what do you think the, um, the future of Southeast Asia is in with respect to like the global music scene and um, maybe what are some of the overblown expectations and underrated aspects of this region? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the overblown expectations are just that like you can send music there and it's going to blow up like, and that you can like send any, like, that that's the spot where like you're supposed to blow up American music. And then like from there it can chart there and then it can chart back. Like you can boomerang back into the United States. Um, I think that like, it's a much, much more complex picture than that, especially because like, despite these markets listening to like a a wider breadth of music, um, there's really like bustling and like, um, interesting domestic scenes in these places like there is some really really cool emerging like bedroom pop artists in the philippines um and um and i think that like honestly i think the future is is with those creators um the power is going to be in their hands too to like if they want to create collaborations with american artists um be the gatekeepers to their industries um or not um but i think like it's, I think, um, the, the, I think what's, what's overlooked is just how powerful the domestic industries are in these places in terms of just, um, creative talent. So let's end on a personal note. Um, what's upcoming for you and where do you see yourself now that you've graduated officially? Like what are your professional goals? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that um, right now I'm in a place where like, I'm just looking to accumulate as many skills as possible. And I think um, something that I've been trying to do in the past like six months in which I'm continuing to try to do after graduation is just accumulate as many data skills as I can, because um, I think the people who succeed in the music industry, both um, domestically and globally are the people who are going to be able to, um, find the best ways to integrate analytics and creativity. Um, like you have to have the perfect balance between using the data, but also, um, having an ear and having like creative imagination. Um, so, um, I've like, I've been working on music for a while and I I've been now working in the industry. So I think I've been cultivating um, a creative ear, but it's only really in the past six months that I've started to harness some of the analytics skills that I learned, like, um, through my social science research in school um, and um, bring that into the music industry and, and scrape data and make projections and um, do some A&R analytics and digital marketing analytics and stuff like that. Um, so I think upon graduating, I'm, I'm kind of both looking to like free, continue to freelance for artists because I really like being like being able to jump on different campaigns and, and like contribute different things to artists, both um, artists who are like 
already established and are trying to grow, but also artists. Like I think my biggest interest at the end of the day is just artists trying to go from zero to 50. Like how can we bring um, artists who are relatively unknown into the global, um, into global view. Um, And so I'm trying to find the perfect way to kind of integrate. How can I accumulate the most skills, but also continue to like, um, work in a freelance way on different campaigns. Um, and maybe that'll mean for a while, um, taking a job at a big organization and trying to kind of cultivate those, um, technical skills and then bring that into, um, a wider arena in some way, but I'm not quite sure yet. So I'm still, still trying to figure it out. Cool. You got time. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, figure it out. You will, man. I, I mean, I just want to compliment you, man. You seem to be so resourceful um, and very original in the way you approach the industry. I mean, just coming from like the, you know, this this background that you have that is, you know, very culturally sensitive and and thoughtful about the like the inner process of music, as well as like you know all the left brain stuff, you know, taking in data and calculating your own cost per view, making up your own metrics, you know, with the help of other people. And then acknowledging that there are other people to help you out, you know, with a lot of these ideas. I think it's great. I think it's great the way you're approaching it. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, like, and I, and I think, I think about these things in like a deep way. A lot of times I, I'm a deep thinker and I think about music in a deep way. Um, and like at the end of the day, what I think like sticks with me is that um, when I think about like what, what is music and like, why is music important to humans? Like, Music has elements that are universal. Things like rhythm, rhythm is something that like exists in the universe. Our heartbeat has rhythm, waves have rhythm, um, the planets have rhythm. Um, and so to me, it's, and music is also a form of communication. Um, it's, think about how much more emotion can be packed into a two minute song compared to a two minute conversation. Um, so to me, it seems like music is almost a way for people to communicate something universal beyond themselves to other people. Um, so in that way, it's like, that makes like all of these things worth it. That makes like, and that, yeah, that, that just makes it all worth it. Amen. Bars. Bars. (laughs) I love the reverence, man. Reverence for the (laughs) art. Hey man, thanks so much for chatting with us today, Adam. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone, please read the article um, that Adam wrote. It's on uh, blog.trapmetric.com. It's out now. Is there any place that people can connect with you on social media somewhere? Um, yeah, so you can um, connect with me on, I'm on LinkedIn at Adam Canwall. And you can also connect with me um, on Instagram. It's probably the platform I use the most um, at Canwall's World. That's Canwall with a Z and then World. Kenwell with a K in the beginning. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But you'll see that in the article. Because, phrase it that oh, way. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks, Adam. Uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. As part of our effort to equip artists with the power of music analytics, we've just rolled out a new artist tier, which you can sign up for at app.chartmetric.com slash plan slash artist for about the price of a coffee per week. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Did we mention we have a YouTube channel? 
That's right. Subscribe for chart metric tutorials and tips for indie artists. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.